Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Well, good morning. Uh, we're back in Ephesians chapter 3, and this will be our, our last uh, time in Ephesians chapter 3. And many people divide the book of Ephesians into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 3 is the doctrinal side, and 4 through 6 is the practical side. So we're actually, we're actually more than halfway through our series because we're going to, we've been speeding up a little bit. I know we're still going slowly through the book of Ephesians, but we've been speeding up a little bit. We handled chapter 3 in three sermons. I think chapter 1 took us six weeks to go through chapter 1. So, so many new ideas were being introduced. We want to take our time through it. But uh, 4, 5, and 6 will also take us about three weeks apiece. So we're more than halfway through, but today's our last day on the doctrinal side. And I've titled this sermon, Prayer for Understanding. In chapter 1, we had a prayer for an apocalypse, uh, which John walked us through. And this one I've called Prayer for Understanding. So not as cool sounding, I know, but uh, I promise it's just as cool, I think. Um, So again, we've been working our way through Ephesians slowly. We're taking the time for those that are more familiar with the book of Ephesians to uh, look at things with a fresh perspective. For those of us that where Ephesians is newer to us, well, uh, here you go. Here's Ephesians from, from, from this perspective. And today, of course, we're going to continue building on so much of what we've already seen in the book of Ephesians. Uh, two weeks ago, when we first started chapter 3, we talked about how the gospel message is a unifying message. That this uh, wonderful secret that God started to unveil to the Apostle Paul and to other leaders in the church in the first century was that God's plan was to unite everything to him in Christ. We read that in Ephesians chapter 1. We talked about how uh, Paul was imprisoned for that gospel. He was accused of bringing uh, an Ephesian Gentile of all people into the temple, a place that he should not have been. And so Paul was imprisoned for this gospel. Uh, Paul eventually, uh, over time, was killed for this gospel. This message of radical unification of the church was so provocative and so powerful that the Jews felt like they had to give Paul over to the Romans so that he'd be imprisoned and that would get him in trouble and would lead to his death. Again, the big plan that God had was to unite everything to him in Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 1. In chapter 2, we saw a subset of this being worked out in humanity through Jews and Gentiles now being united into one church. And then last week, what we saw was that this news has not just gone out to the Apostle Paul. It hadn't just gone to the apostles and prophets in his time. It didn't even just go out to the people. It went out to the spiritual authorities in heavenly places. We saw that the angels and the demons are watching this radical unification of humanity. Uh, Some of them applauding, the angels applauding and being thankful for what God is doing. The demons not so much applauding what God is doing. We're undoing all of the work that they've done for millennia by walking unified as a church. And so... Uh, We also saw last week that the God of big plans, big secrets, he's a big God with big riches. He's also the God of intimate access and close association. He wants us, we saw last week, to approach us, to to approach him like we would a close friend. We're going to pick up that thread as we think about Paul's prayer that that we'll walk through today. 
Before we tackle our subject for today, I want to bring back our four themes we've been working through. The first one is that Ephesians, as a letter, was written to a community a long time ago, and so it's meant to be understood in a communal sense. Uh, every you in this uh, letter is a plural you, so we've been reading it as y'all. Um, so that's one theme that we've been tackling. Uh, the next thing that we've been talking about is new creation and new order of things in Jesus. We've been talking about this apocalypse, this revelation of Jesus, this mind-changing encounter with Christ uh, that changes our lives. And certainly the Apostle Paul had that on the road to Damascus. Uh, we may not experience that by a vision from, of Jesus from heaven. Uh, I'd love to experience one of those, um, but I haven't. I can't say that I have experienced that yet. Maybe you have. Uh, but mo more frequently, this happens to us in the Bible. It happens when a friend shares the gospel message or teaches us something. Um, and what we've seen is that apocalypse, that revelation, can continue to take place. We can continue to learn more and more. We're going to build on that idea today. Uh, the third thing is we've been talking about unity in Christ. And, of course, that's manifested in this book as Jew and Gentile most specifically. That's not our issue today. Our issue today is not Jews and Gentiles. Our issue tends to be among race and among sexism and other isms of our time. Uh, but we can also break down those barriers in Christ. And then finally, we've seen, we talked about division and battle with the powers of the world. Uh, so when we see division, we know that the powers are at work. Uh, we are to be agents of unity, as it calls us to do here in the book of Ephesians. So our question for today, what are we trying to understand? I've called it a prayer for understanding. Our question for today is, how do we begin to understand the love of Christ? That's really the focus of this passage is the love of Christ and understanding it. So let's begin by reading our passage for this week. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I, Paul, bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant y'all to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in y'all's inner being, so that Christ may dwell in y'all's hearts through faith, that y'all, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that y'all may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we, that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So it starts with a prayer in verses 14 through 19, and then there's what's called a doxology here at the end in verses 20 and 21. So let's start with the beginning of the prayer here in verse 14 and 15. I'll reread those. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So we begin this section by picking up the train of thought that Paul began in verse 1. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, how the for this reason at the beginning of chapter 3, in chapter 3 verse 1, gets suspended in the Greek grammar until we get to verse 14 where he repeats the phrase for this reason. So when we think about for this reason here in verse 14, it's going back to verse 1 and then verse 1 is going back to chapter 2. And the things that Paul shared at the end of chapter 2, again, is this idea that the separation between God and humanity 
has been restored. That separation is no longer there. And that because of that unification between God and humanity through Christ, that now all of humanity can come into the people of God. So there's no more separation between ethnic and religious groups in humanity. There's no more separation that we can build up. God has unified us all. All Gentiles are now being invited into the new covenant we saw at the end of chapter 2 with God. So Yahweh is not just the God of the Jews anymore. He is the God over all. He's the God over all humanity. Here in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays to the Father. The Father is also called the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians 1.3. Now Paul normally prayed to the Father. Uh, he references praying to the Father some 20 times in Scripture. And Paul describes his posture in prayer here, which is unique, uh, which he describes as a humble bowing. Uh, many times in that culture, to pray, you would stand up with your eyes and your hands lifted up to heaven. But here, he indicates that he's bowing. Verse 15 picks up a thread that we looked at last week, and it does it using a wordplay in the Greek. Uh, the words for father and family in our language are not related, but in the Greek language, they are related. Um, so every family, uh, when it says he bowing, he's bowing his knees before the father, and then he talks about um, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, he's using a little bit of wordplay here. And every family in the ESV would be better translated, all the families. So what we have described here is that God is the father of all the families, that's families on earth and families in heaven, all the families. So he's talking about, in terms of the earthly families, things like ethnic groups, languages, prior religious backgrounds, all those things that were once a barrier to him being their father is no longer a barrier. He's also the father of all the families in heaven. Angels, seraphim, cherubim, there's all these angelic beings. There's all these different families that Paul has us picturing here, and God is the father over all of them. And especially he's the father over the faithful ones. In the uh, earlier in Ephesians, we talked about Jesus having the name above every name, and we talked about how naming names was a way to gain power over something in ancient cultures, especially in pagan cultures and societies. Um, and so the idea that he has named all the families in heaven and on earth, that means he has authority over all those families. Um, and remember, too, that the Ephesian Gentiles likely had strong pagan backgrounds. This was the home of one of the ancient wonders of the world, which was the temple of the goddess uh, Artemis or Diana. And so one of the things that we're going to see here in this passage is that uh, when people normally related to pagan gods, the relationship was one that's unfamiliar to those of us who have grown up in a Christian kind of environment. When you think about a pagan god and that relationship between you and the pagan god, you were never seen as a co-worker with a pagan god. There's no pagan god in the history of all pagan gods that viewed humanity as workers alongside of God. If you want to check, check my math, check my work on that, go read some Greek mythology. Go read some of these Babylonian mythologies. Go look at Native American ways of worshiping, other ways of worshiping. What you find is Humanity is usually viewed as second-class citizens at best, if not outright slaves of these gods. And when you think about the gods that existed in the Old Testament time, uh, like Baal and um, Moloch and these other gods, Moloch was a god that you had to sacrifice children to to placate him. 
That's what Moloch, that's what your relationship with Moloch looked like. Baal, you'd cut yourself and you do all these crazy things so that he would bring rain. So you're talking about a relationship with gods that was around uh, placating uh, somebody above you who never was going to respect you, who was never going to love you, who was never going to acknowledge you as a co-worker or as someone worthy of anything. You were just viewed as lesser by these other gods. And so when we recognize that God is our father, that there is a family relationship being talked about here, this is a different dynamic than other religions of the time. Um, Clinton Arnold puts it this way in the Zondervan Illustrated Biblical Backgrounds Commentary on Ephesians. He, he talks about this idea of God being called father. He says, uh, this unusual description of God, he means the father of all families in heaven on earth. Father is not unusual for God in the Bible, but being the father of all the families in, in heaven on earth, uh, that's a, a unique. So he says, this unusual description of God characterizes him as the source of all life. The bestowing of a name means the granting of power and authority. God has made the whole of humanity in all of its diversity. He is also the creator of the heavenly angelic realm in all its diversity and authorities and roles. In spite of the fact that part of the angelic realm has rebelled against him, God remains sovereign. He is the one who has granted them life and power. This should be reassurance to people who fear that hostile powers might disrupt what has been asked for them in prayer. So Paul is reminding them that they have a real relationship with God and that he is the father over all. That he's going to hear their prayers, that he's going to hear and care for them. So the picture that Paul has for us here is that he has intimate access and confidence to speak to God. He's living out what he shared just a couple of verses before about having close access, boldness and access with confidence through faith. And he's reminding us that the God that he's talking to is the God who's above everything. He's created everything. He's named everything. He's given life to everything. And he's reminding us that we have access to this father just as he did. Let's continue reading in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant y'all to be strengthened with power through his spirit in y'all's inner being. So that Christ may dwell in y'all's hearts through faith. That y'all, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that y'all may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a lot going on in these four verses, so I'm going to simplify here at the beginning, then we'll walk through it slowly. Paul makes two requests here of the Father. The first is for God to strengthen them in their inner being, and that's verses 16 and 17. The second is to grant them understanding of Christ's incredible love, that's verses 18 and 19. So let's start by working our way through 16 and 17. Just like we've seen throughout Ephesians, one of the things we find here is this abundance, richness language. We see the riches of his glory here at the beginning of verse 16, according to the riches of his glory. And what does Paul want according to the riches of his glory? He wants y'all to be strengthened with power through his spirit in y'all's inner being. Now, I want to mention that we've talked about power a couple times in the book of Ephesians. And power here is not to be understood as uh, like we often do in our modern time. And even they understood back in their time as like the ability to control or exert influence over other people. 
That's not the power it's talking about here in Ephesians. It's also not necessarily spiritual power like we think about from a charismatic perspective. This is not necessarily talking about healings or miracles or things like that. This is talking about the, um, the ability to understand, power to comprehend this great love of Christ. It's the power to be rooted and grounded in love. It's the power to experience all these things in community. So um, that's a little bit more about the power here. It's not, it's not worldly power. It's not spiritual power like we'd normally think about it. It's power to comprehend uh, so that we can have that Christ, that, that, that uh, Messiah dwelling in our hearts through faith, that communally we'd see Christ dwelling among us. It's also not a mystical experience. Max Turner says it this way in the New Bible Commentary. Uh, this is not a prayer for a mystical experience, far less that our human selves should be abolished so that we become channels only. We're not channels. I'm aside here for a second. We're not channels like a pagan gods. Often we're just take over the person and control them and speak through them and then, boom, throw them away when they were done. Just a little quick aside here. I'm continuing with Max Turner here. Paul's prayer is that Christ should dwell in us by or through faith. That is that we should live our lives with fuller loving trust in him, being more and more deeply molded by the Christ event. It is this indwelling of Christ that strengthens the believer's life and keeps him or her on a firm foundation, especially in times of trial. So here we see our purpose in this, our purpose the things that we need to do to be a part of this, and that is that we need to be following after Christ. We need to be seeking after this so that we have our faith increasing and growing so that we experience this. In verse 17, we also see at the beginning here Christ dwelling in our hearts. And as Tim Mackey points out in the Ephesians class, Christ's dwelling here is temple language. So here in Ephesians, back in chapter 2, we saw that the church was pictured as the temple of God, right? So if the church is the temple, when we had the temple in the Old Testament times, what would happen is God's glory would come and do what? It would dwell or fill the temple, wouldn't it? So here we have a picture where we collectively are being built into the temple of God and the glory is coming in to the temple. And who's the glory? Christ is the glory that's filling the temple. The purpose of Christ dwelling in the temple is for us to be rooted and grounded in love. And here again, we find imagery that Paul's already used in the book of Ephesians. Rooted is the tree, the tree that we're growing up into at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. And grounded is the foundation of the temple that's being built at the end of chapter 2. So the imagery here is communal imagery. It's not that Christ would dwell in me or Christ would dwell in you, but Christ dwells in all of us together, that we come together as a community based on unity and love and that Christ would dwell among us in that. So this leads us to the second request found in verses 18 and 19. I'm going to reread those. Verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that y'all may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here I think it's funny that Paul is asking the Father to give us strength to comprehend with all the saints, all these things, 
and also to know the love of Christ, but then he also in the next phrase says that surpasses knowledge. We're never going to quite get there. We're never going to quite attain to it. But Paul is asking the Father, he's asking God that these Ephesian Christians would have the strength to comprehend, to grasp, to hold on to the full reality of God's power and Christ's love together in community with one another. And here at the end of verse 19, we get filled with all the fullness of God. And again, that's more temple imagery here. It's more God dwelling among us. So there are several levels to understanding what this means in a community sense. Uh, the first is sort of the abstract understanding that many of us probably will default to of what togetherness means in a context like this. So like you think about it, like how do I understand Christ's love in a communal sense? Um, well, um, one way would be to think of it like the way for me to be really, for me to really understand the love of Christ as much as I can understand it at least is to be in community with other people is just to be in community with other people and see people live in ways that are dynamic and unique and are new to me. And in that way, I can see the love of Christ from different dimensions, different directions. But that doesn't get us, I don't think, all the way to what Paul is saying, because Paul's not talking about necessarily just unity among people who are very similar. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles, groups that had enmity before, who fought against each other before. Um, and you have to think about Paul, too, specifically, which we'll get to here in a second. Um, his life was not one without violence. And so we have to think about this just beyond the abstract. It's not enough that we think about communal life and understanding the love of Christ abstractly. Uh, this is talking about us living like this with people who are not like us, people we may have a natural dislike for, and even people who have wronged us and people we don't get along with. That's what this is talking about. Us learning from people we dislike. Us experiencing the love of Christ among and through people that we don't like and don't get along with. Tim Mackey said it this way in the Ephesians class for the Bible Project. He says, There are depths and dimensions to the love of God that are impossible for me to experience if I'm not regularly around other followers of Jesus that are not like me. Then later he says, through the eyes of someone who's not like me, the world gets bigger and more complex. And so this is what we're being called into. And I want to go back to Paul's place in this. Paul ministered in communities where, not necessarily Ephesus, but other communities, where he likely led people's fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, friends, to prison or had them killed. So how would that play out when he goes to a place where he's done that and he goes to minister to people? How are they to understand the height and the breadth and the length and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge with Paul coming into town, having done all that, except through the forgiveness, except through these manifestations of God's love? Um, so this is the way we grow to comprehend the love of Christ. Remember Christ dying on the cross said, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. That's the love of, of Christ at its peak, at its highest moment. And in the eternal kingdom of God, all true believers will be worshiping together. So we might as well do our best to get along now as much as we can. <laughs> to paraphrase Tim Mackey again, 
There are dimensions of God's love that will be inaccessible to us if we do not get outside of ourselves. And so that's the great commission that we're given here in Ephesians chapter 3, is to actively seek out people who are different from us and to serve them in love, just as Christ did that for others as well. That finishes the prayer, and I want to turn now to the doxology here at the end in verses 20 and 21. Let's read those verses again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, we've made it to the most famous part of the passage for many of us. Uh, And this is a a verse, Ephesians 3.20, that uh, many of us uh, have quoted before and talked about before. We may have even have experienced something in our lives and said, hey, man, that was a real Ephesians 3.20 kind of event for me. Or God really did an Ephesians 3.20 for me in this. And so let me just begin by saying, I'm not here to take that away from you. (laughs) I do believe that there is a general sense. This is a doxology, and doxologies are generally meant to be understood in a general way. Okay, so we can understand this as a very broad thing. God is always capable of doing much more than we ask or think in any situation in life. I think this is something that we can pray for, and this is something that we can ask God for. And this is something that we can experience in our lives. Um, but I do want to point out that there is a specific context that we're dealing here, and I want to pull some specific threads from the context, and hopefully this gives us a bigger way of looking at this, uh, these verses. And so I want to start by saying that as we've seen throughout Ephesians, this growing in knowledge, this enlightenment, this revelation, this apocalypse, it's a continual process. And I want to say that I don't think that this process will end at the end of our lives, at the end of this life. I think it might even continue into the kingdom, into eternal, into eternity. So I humbly submit to you that we will continue to grow and comprehend more and more in these things, in the love of God, in the love of Christ, in the power of God throughout all of eternity. We're going to continue growing in this. We're going to continue experiencing more. So when we talk about God doing far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, I think sometimes, I know many of us, especially when we're going through difficult times, we're tempted to look at verses like this and be like, well, I'm not, I'm not seeing that right now. I'm not experiencing that right now. I'm not seeing exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. I'm not even seeing, you know, baseline, like what I minimally need right now in comfort or whatever it might be. Um, and that's an honest assessment. But I want to point out that where will we, even if you feel that way today, where will we be guaranteed to see exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think? In the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God is where we absolutely will see this. So even if we want to read this as a promise, and look, I think you know, setting the idea of a promise aside, that's a, that's a topic for another day. Um, we should read this as a kingdom promise. If we're going to read this as a promise, it's a kingdom promise. And so there are pieces of this that I think do break through into our lives today, but the fullness, I think, is still future. And I think that we will continue to see that more and more in veil throughout eternity. But I want to return, secondly, I want, I want us to think about Ephesians 3.20 in the light of the context of Ephesus, uh, the pagan situation that we were talking about at the beginning. So in the context of Ephesus and the ancient Near East more generally, 
the idea of placating a god was the main aspect of the human-divine relationship. You do this animal sacrifice so that your crops grow. You do this thing so that you get rain. Uh, you do this thing so that nothing bad will happen and the people who want to destroy you, whatever, don't destroy you. Uh, the idea was that you had to um, do something so that the gods wouldn't do something bad to you. Okay, so that's what a relationship with a god looked like in the ancient Near East. So now this section of the letter of Ephesians is describing God as having power over all the families in heaven and on earth. It's describing God as a God who has riches of glory. It's, he can share his strength and power so that we can understand the love of Christ. He wants to fill us with his fullness. He's given us, in verse 12, close access to him as a friend. So if we have the gods over here that you placate, you don't have a relationship with, you're always a slave or subjugated, you're not seen as a co-worker or any kind of close, anything even resembling like a son or a daughter. That's the context they grew up in. This is what Paul's explaining to them about the Father now in this. So this relationship with God, this invitation that God is more than the God of the Jews now, that he's the God of all the families in heaven and on earth, I submit to you that this extension of grace is already far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. That the alternative religion, the alternative lifestyle that would have been accessible to them in that day and time, that this offer of salvation and grace in Christ in their lives, and I think also in our modern lives too, that extension of grace, this idea of the kingdom, this restored earth that's coming, the idea of living under a perfect king forever, these things are far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you, by asking or thinking, had, came into this world and experienced life the first time? None of us. This life that we live right now, the breaths that I'm drawing right now, is more than I could ask or think because I wasn't here because of me. I'm here because my parents wanted me here, I guess. <laughs> I don't have to guess. They told me I was planned. <laughs> but planned or not... Planned or not, I didn't ask or think to be here. And what I'm saying is this offer of eternal life is already more than we could ask or think. It's exceedingly more than we could ask or think. And we get to have all of that and a relationship with God now. So now, using that as a starting point, considering God as a father who wants to take care of his children, now we can begin to see the greatness of what this means. He has given you a gift of grace through Christ to start a relationship with you. And he wants to help you receive his best and his timing, which is always for our good. We trust that that way. So that's a little bit about Ephesians 3.20. Like I said, I'm not trying to take away the general way we you know, have normally understood it, but I think that there are some threads that can help us see other dimensions of it. And finally, in verse 21, there are two ways that it says the glory of God is displayed. And that is in the church and in Christ Jesus. And those are two separate things pictured here. Um, the first one is the unified and thriving church. That's how God's glory is displayed. In the unified and thriving church, which displays to even the heavenly authorities, good and bad, 
the wisdom of God, as we saw last week. And it's through his son, Jesus the King, the one who's been seated at his right hand and who has authority over everything but his Father. That's how God's glory is displayed by bringing that king up to his right hand. So what does this mean for our lives? We've been thinking through the four layers of interpretation here. And again, the four layers of interpretation is just to help us understand that this is an ancient letter written to people 2,000 years ago, halfway around the globe. We can't just pick it up and expect to immediately apply everything without a little bit of thought. And so we think about uh, what does this text mean to them? Uh, how did they apply it? Then we have to think about the same thing for us. What does it mean to us? And then how would we apply it? We've already looked at what the text meant to them. How would they have applied it? Well, I believe in the original context of this church in Ephesus, uh, the original audience would have appreciated the distinction between their past life with the past pagan gods that they dealt with, that fractured kind of relationship of always placating someone who never viewed you as a son or a daughter, but as a slave into the new relationship with a father who has authority over all the families in heaven on earth and who's extending himself to fill us with his fullness and to give us the riches of his glory through the love of Christ. They understood they were infused with his spirit. They belonged to the father of heaven and earth. And together they knew that they were growing into the temple and into the tree filled with the presence of God and experiencing the love of Jesus the Messiah. So what does this text mean to us? We don't worry as much about the powers or pagan gods and pagan rituals as they did. But I think we too can be happy to belong to the Father of heaven and earth. We are infused by his spirit. And 2,000 years later, we are still growing into the church. We're, the church is still growing into a bigger temple, into a bigger tree. And together, we are filled with the presence of God and experience more and more of the love of Jesus the Messiah. So as we think about this, we're now halfway through the letter to the Ephesians. And like I said, next week we'll begin looking at the practical half. And so this week I encourage you to reflect on what we've seen so far. Paul has painted a vivid picture of God's plan for unity. How experiencing this apocalypse, this life-changing encounter with Jesus, can change us forever. How we can fight against the powers and how we all do that better as a community. And this is the foundation for the rest of the letter. And to close, I just wanted to give you some of the highlights from this first half of Ephesians. We have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ. We have been chosen in the chosen one, Jesus our Lord. We have been united to God in Christ. We have an inheritance waiting for us in the kingdom of God. We can pray for an apocalypse for ourselves and others. We serve a Lord who is above the powers. We are made alive together with Christ. We have been given grace and are a community of grace. We are part of God's new plan for humanity. We are being built into the new temple. We are the church of the open secret together with the people of God. We have access to God's infinite riches and we can pray to understand more and more God's power and Christ's love. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for all the things that you've shared with us and how you've been enlightening us and helping us to see more and more of your plan for the ages. Help us to continue to grow in love. Help us continue to seek the fellowship of those who need you the most, who may be hostile to us and to you at first, Father. We ask that you would give us 
uh, greater and greater strength to comprehend um, your love and your mercy and the plan that you have for all of us, God. We're so thankful for all that you've done for us through Christ. And we ask you to continue to infuse us with your power so that we can fulfill your purposes for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslou.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.